All right, am I on? All right. Well, this is actually, this, this is weird to be up on a stage. This is actually the second time that I've ever spoke from this stage in this room. And this is our old sanctuary, for those of you, I'm sure you remember that. Um, the first, the last time that I spoke here was I was asked to speak at the homeschool graduation, and that was like 12 years ago, and I have not been asked back, so apparently I'm 0 for 1 at this stage. We're just going to see if I can pull it back, pull us back to 500 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So the passage that we come to this morning uh, is a very clear, very concise, very well laid out passage. Um, Whenever I block diagram it, it comes out and it's very simple. There's two main points. The first point has three points under it and the second point has four. It was real easy. It was basic. So I love that. But really, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is built on the very last part of chapter 9 the last few verses of chapter 9. So I know that Peter taught uh, in chapter 9 this last week, uh, but I want to just go to verse 24 real quick. So in your Bibles, turn to uh, switch back from chapter 10 to verse 24 of chapter 9. And I'm just going to read that passage. In my Bible, it starts out in kind of the title is it's striving for a crown. He's giving a challenge. Paul is drawing an analogy in this passage. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So what he's doing is he's kind of creating an analogy. He's drawing an analogy so that we can picture what he's talking about in terms that are applicable to us today. So he's talking about running a race. He's talking about all that goes into preparing yourself for a race and being in a race. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race race, all run, everybody does, but only one receives the prize. There's only one that comes in first. If you come in second, it just means you're the first loser, right? That's what that means. Only one comes in first. It says, run, and then this is his challenge to them, run in such a way that you may win. So he's drawing this analogy, but then he's also saying, you need to run because you are running in a race as well. You are engaged every single moment of every single day in a race. And he says, you need to run with a mindset and with an attitude and in a way that you will win. He goes on to say in verse 25, it says, everyone who competes in the games, and this term games, uh, everyone in that time period knew and understood of the Olympic games that had gone on and that they were involved in. And so they understood that games meant to be these Olympics. Um, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. When he says everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, if you are an athlete, 
you are mindful of everything that goes into your performance. Everything, the way you eat, the way you sleep, your mindset, your attitude. They have psychological coaches for people in sports. Um, I actually listened to and read through his audio book of a guy named Bob Rotella, Dr. Bob Rotella. And he wrote, and he is a golf psychologist, and he talks about this book, A Golfer's Mind, the way to think on a golf course. It didn't do a lot to help me, but I actually listened to it. But the people that are athletes, they are actively engaged in every way about how they can improve their performance. The way they think, the way they eat, the way they sleep, their attitude, the way they exercise, everything goes into winning. And he's challenging the Corinthians and us today to have this same attitude. He goes on to say, because they're running for a wreath, that was what they would get if they won, that was perishable, it would wither up and die. But we, as believers, are in a race that is imperishable. In other words, it's something that counts for eternity. Something that will never perish. It will never go away. So the reward that we're striving for is of the highest value. Everything else will perish, but this will not. He goes on to say, therefore, I run in such a way, Paul talking about himself, as not beating the air, uh, and, uh, as without, uh, I'm sorry, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air. He's drawing another sports analogy. He's not just shadow boxing, he's actually engaged in hitting the bag, in practicing, in something that is going to build him up. He says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So that's the, the basis, the mindset that the challenge that we're getting ready to get into is built upon. The mindset that we, you and I, are in a race. And we are to be handling ourselves and living in such a way that we are not disqualified. But instead we are qualified. For what? For the, the race for the crown. The eternal crown of life. The crowns that God gives out. Things that last for eternity. Not things that are perishable. So... That brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 1. So, uh, the title of our lesson this morning is Avoiding Israel's Mistakes. Avoiding Israel's Mistakes. This passage really breaks down into two parts. The first part, A, is the blessing of liberty. The blessing of liberty. I'm going to read the first four verses and then we're going to walk through them. It starts out and it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all like this ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. That word for that starts out this passage in verse 1 refers back to the disqualification of service that Paul had just written about in verse 27 of chapter 9. And it kind of introduces some examples and some things that we're to be mindful of and things that we are to follow after with the whole goal of we want to be qualified. We do not want to disqualify ourselves. So he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. What he's doing is he's preparing his readers, uh, his hearers to hear a new insight, a new thought, a new pattern, a new way to think, a new way to act. It's an urgent statement that he's making. He's saying, hey, I want you to be, I do not want you to be unaware. I want you to be alert. I want you to be aware. And he's going to remind them of a teaching that they already knew, but he's going to create a mindset about that teaching of how it's going to impact their ability to be qualified and to be running a race. So... All of the Hebrews, the Israelites that were hearing this, uh, were physical descendants of Abraham, every single one of them. So this is just kind of groundwork before we get to point one under A, the blessings of liberty. Um, All the Hebrews, all the Israelites were direct descendants of Abraham. But to be truly God's children, they had to also be his spiritual descendants. Just because you were an Israelite, just because you were a Hebrew, just because you were a descendant of Abraham did not mean that you were in Christ. It's very similar to just because your parents go to church here and just because you go to church here does not mean that you are in Christ. Yes, you were born into a Christian family, possibly, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You go to a Christian, Bible-believing church. That doesn't mean that you are a Christian. You have to be... There's a spiritual birth that takes place that works in the hearts. So, um, just because they were spiritual descendants of Abraham didn't mean that they were automatically saved and automatically righteous before God. Romans 9, 6, and then in verse 8, it talks about... For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Those that come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ are those that are actually spiritual descendants. So Abraham was father of a a faithful Uh, group and are in this sense Paul's reference to our fathers when he says our fathers it could be addressed to Gentiles as well um, as Jewish Christians for they were spiritual descendants of all who believed that was the truth in verses one through four Paul emphasizes the oneness of Israel as a corporate community he's talking about Israel corporately all together all of Israel when he addresses them that word All is actually used five times in those first four verses to indicate the oneness of experience that the Israelites received from God. This is these these are the blessings, the experiences that God blessed them all with. 
And so he actually walks through three different blessings that they received. So under the blessings of liberty is number one, liberation from Egypt. Liberation from Egypt. He talks about that in verse one. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He says, um, so after just kind of painting the picture of this time, after a few years of very good treatment in Egypt because of Joseph, because of what God had done through Joseph to save Egypt, and he used it to save the Israelites, um, they went on to spend approximately 400 years as slaves in Egypt. Horrible time. They were subjected to living under a pagan culture. They were abused. They were overworked. It was a bad situation. They were slaves. That word slaves means someone captured, sold, or born into slavery. Someone, who, that it, someone or something that is completely subservient, subservient to a dominating person or influence. They were slaves to the Egyptians. But what God did is he chose to save them out of Egypt. So after 400 years, and then we all know the story of the of Moses going in, and we saw the 10 plagues. We don't have time to get into a lot of it, but we, after the 10 plagues uh, that he sent against the Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh released the people. God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And by doing that, it says, it goes on to say that he opened the Red Sea for them to pass through the sea in this passage, through the sea. It's talking about when God parted the, the waters and they went through on dry land and then the waters crashed in on the Egyptians who were pursuing them to kill them. It says that he guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar uh, of fire by night. God's amazing deliverance of his chosen people from bondage to freedom, known as the Exodus, was known by all in Israel. This was one of their greatest stories that they would tell their kids. This was a point of winning. They exodus, they received an exodus. God saved them out of Egypt after 400 years. So they were all very aware of what Paul was talking about when he talked about what God did for them. I want you to be, I, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And then he begins to recount these things. That God, uh, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Um, it's important to understand as we talk about this word exodus and the exodus, that it did not represent a spiritual salvation for the people. Um, Men have always been spiritually saved only by personal faith in Jesus Christ. Personal faith in God. That is it. The fact that he saved them out of Egypt did not constitute salvation as we talk about salvation today. Now, a lot of Israelites believed that that's what that meant. It was kind of like going back to, hey, just because I grew up in this church, that means I'm saved. That's not true. Just because you were born into a Christian family or just because you attend this church does not constitute salvation. Um, many Israelites believed wholly in God while they were in Egypt. And no doubt many came to personal faith during the, the wilderness wanderings that they got into after that. 
Um, Israel has, uh, was never spiritual, saved spiritually as a nation. That did not happen. Only individuals were saved. Um, yet their national deliverance is a symbol of the new covenant salvation that God gives to us today. That's what he does. The exodus was God's calling his chosen people, believing and unbelieving, out of slavery. Out of their bondage in Egypt. Um, and they were to be, per God's plan, his witnesses to the world. That's what his goal was. That was the race that they had. You are my chosen people, and you, I'm going to bring the Messiah through you, and you are going to be my witnesses in the world. That was the race that they were given. Um, that was the race that Israel as a nation was called to run. So the first blessing that they received was liberation from Egypt. And he is reminding them of these things because the way they think about these things and the way they respond to these things impact their ability to run the race effectively. So the first point was liberation from Egypt. Number two was baptism into Moses. Baptism, this was kind of a heart when I first got to this, I was like, man, what, is, what are they talking about? Baptism into Moses. Baptism refers to the ceremony that we are used to today uh, in which water is used to symbolize a cleansing of sin and a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, many Christians interpret, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea as a reference to that ceremony of baptism. So people think, well, did God sprinkle rain on them and they were baptized while they're out in the wilderness? Is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. Um, because it was not just a cloud that covered them in the day, but it was also a cloud of fire at night. Uh, and it says that, uh, that that cloud was the Shekinah glory of God, um, the, of his presence, and it led them, it guided them. And it says the sea parted so that the people could walk through on dry land. The basic Christian significance for baptism that we view baptism today is identification with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's identification with Christ. After God has done a work in your heart, it is a public confession of what has happened inside of you. It's an outward example and a witness and a testimony. Paul explains in Romans 6 verses 1 through 10 uh, and we don't have time to go there, but the water baptism is an outright, outward sign of that spiritual union. If you want to read it, that's a great passage. Water baptism symbolizes the baptism believers have already experienced. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are baptized into him. That's what we are. When, and that happens without water. It happens at our point of salvation. When we are baptized into Jesus Christ. Um, we are baptized into him. We are identified with him. We are made one with him. It says in Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. So it is that idea of spiritual identification. 
that's given when it talks about they were baptized into Moses. Um, the, the way I look at it and the way I draw it up in my mind is, of course, a sports analogy. Um, it's like being drafted onto a team. It's like becoming a part of a team. Whenever you become, let's take any, let's take the, because the Texas Rangers are winners, let's use them. If you are a part of the Texas Rangers, you get to wear their jersey, you get to be on the field, you're associated with them, you are a part of that team. Um, this is what's being talked about, the fact that um, they were baptized into Moses. God, the blessings that God poured out on them through Moses, they got to receive. They were allowed to participate in what God was doing in Moses. They participated in. They were a part of that team. Um, so that's what that's being, uh, what's being talked about. That was a blessing that they received is they got to be on that team. They were part of it. They were baptized into Moses. So that was number two. Number three, the, the third thing that was a blessing that they received was spiritual sustenance. Spiritual sustenance. It says that the fact that all the Israelites ate the same spiritual food indicates that Paul is not speaking of God's working in the spirits of individual Israelites. So we're not talking about in their spirits. It's talking about something that was done to them and for them, but it's really talking more about the source not the type of work that was done for them. Paul is speaking of the source and not the type of sustenance. It is true that God spiritually strengthened the Israelites who believed in him, but he provided physical food and drink through spiritual means for all of Israel, um, believers and unbelievers alike. God, it's called that term common grace. God poured out his common grace on all of the Israelites, all of them. Um, the Lord miraculously provided manna for food in Exodus 16, and he provided water to drink in Exodus 17. God provided cloud by day, fire by night. He protected them. And kept them safe. In this sense, they were all spiritually sustained. Um, that is, they were given provisions from a divine source rather than a natural one. It's something that God did supernaturally for them. That was a blessing that they received. It says that the source of the spiritual drink was a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Even at the time of their exodus, this is an amazing thing whenever you read that. At the time of the exodus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, the pre-incarnate God, Jesus Christ, was physically providing for Israel. That is a blessing. You know, as I was going through this, when I first read this passage... Um, I remember as a kid growing up in church and hearing 
uh, Old Testament stories about the wilderness wanderings and all the things that happened with all the flannel graphs and all that kind of stuff and Sunday school and we called it training union on Sunday nights in Southern Baptist churches. So that's when they break out the flannel graphs big time because they're just trying to waste time, I think. But anyways, um, but I remember as far back as I could think, hearing those stories and going, what in the world was wrong with the Israelites? How could they continue to mess up time and time and time again? It blew my mind. I was like, what is wrong with these people? They are receiving all these good things and they're just messing it all up. Paul's bringing this back up for a reason. Because this is the same challenge that the Corinthians were facing. The same challenges that the Israelites were facing, the Corinthians were facing. And the thing is, is the same challenges that the Corinthians were facing when Paul wrote this letter, we're facing today. So whenever we sit and look at the Israelites and say, what is wrong with them? It is so much easier to see sin in other people than it is to see it in ourselves. For us to be introspective, to be able to really view ourselves as God views us. Because we tend to view ourselves in the absolute best way possible. We tend to view ourselves in the best light possible. We judge ourselves based on our, our good motives, not on our actual actions. That was one of the challenges that was being faced here. But anyways, getting back, I just wanted to say that because that's kind of part of the mindset uh, as we're walking through this. Uh, when it says that the, the spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ, there was actually, this was interesting to me, the Jews had a popular legend or story that they would, I'm sure, tell their kids. Um, and many of the Corinthians actually knew this story because during that time they were still very close and that this is the stories that they would tell. But they believed that the actual rock that Moses struck that gave them water followed Israel throughout the desert. That rock followed Israel as they moved and it moved with them. That was the, the story that they would tell. And he's talking about that there was a spiritual rock which followed them. They probably knew that story and they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that story. And it says, and that rock was Christ. Very important. Paul was alluding to that legend. He may have been alluding to that legend. Um, but it was not a physical rock that provided merely physical water for them. It wasn't. Because they had the pre-incarnate Christ with them. It was a spiritual rock. It was the Messiah whom they had been waiting for forever. It was, he was there with them. That term that Paul uses for rock in the original Greek is not petros, which means a large stone or boulder, but petra, big difference. Petra means a massive rock cliff, like massive rock cliff. That's what was following them. Not a little boulder 
that put out water that God miraculously used whenever Moses struck it, even in sin struck it. God used a boulder to provide water for Israel on one occasion, but that spiritual rock which followed them throughout their journeys was not a small boulder, but it was the rock of the great rock, the great rock cliff of Christ. That supernatural rock protected and sustained his people and would not allow them to perish. Um, so, that's all of A. Now we come to B. A was the blessings of liberty. B is the abuses of liberty. The abuses of liberty. Daniel, when am I supposed to be done? 10.30? Anyone? Anyone? 10.30, okay. We're going to shoot for 10.30. Okay. The abuses of liberty. Uh, Let me read chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. It says, Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by this destroyer. All Israel shared in the common blessings of liberation from Egypt, of baptism into Moses. They were, they were on the team, so to speak. Um, and they were spiritually sustained. And physically sustained. Those were blessings that they received. It starts out in chapter 10, verse 5. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Now, what's interesting, when you think about these numbers, whenever the children of Israel led out of Egypt... um, and there's varying amounts, but there were approximately, and this is an approximate, there were about approximately 2.4 million people that were led out of Egypt by Moses. 2.4 million people. That is a massive group that ended up being stated, uh, that was stated about to them. Uh, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. 2.4 million people. Most of them is an understatement. Um, Of the entire number of Israelites who left Egypt, only two entered the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones. Even Moses and Aaron were disqualified from entering the promised land because of their sin. That's an amazing thing that most of them were disqualified. Now, it doesn't mean that they all died and went to hell. does not mean that. They were disqualified. They were not capable of being in the service of the Lord in the promised land because of their sin. Because of disobedience, all but two Israelites were laid low in the wilderness. That word laid low literally means to spew Uh, To strew or spread over is what that means. The corpses 
of 2.4 million Israelites, approximately, are strewn about in the desert. That's a lot. That's significant. What happened? Why? I think it's important for us to understand why, because Paul is using this as an example to us and an encouragement for us in the race that we're running, going back to chapter 9. We need to know what happened so that we don't fall in the same way. We don't become disqualified. All Israel had been graciously blessed, liberated, baptized, sustained by the Lord, but they were but most of them were disqualified. They misused and abused their freedoms and their blessings. God had poured out freedoms and blessings on them and they misused them. Most of the disqualified Israelites were believers who uh, many, I'm sorry, many were believers who became unfit for God's service. They were believers but they were unfit for God's service of what he had planned for them to finish the race. They had become what Paul refers to as vessels of dishonor. They had not cleansed themselves from youthful lusts and had not pursued righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Consequently, they did not become vessels that were sanctified, as uh, Paul talks about, uh, useful to the master, prepared for every good work, according to 2 Timothy 2, uh, 21 and 22. That's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. Um, the judgments experienced by the disobedient Israelites in the wilderness were examples, it says, examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. They craved evil things that disqualified them from the service that, and from the plan that God had. So, and because of that, they were laid low in the wilderness. So what, what did they crave? There were four things. Number one, idolatry. Idolatry. Verse 7 talks about that. Idols were very common in the day of the Corinthians. So they had a very firm understanding and grasp of that term idols, of what it meant. There were pretty much no religious, social, political, or business functions that took place in Corinth in, Corinth in that day that didn't involve, in some way, shape, or form, idols being talked about, worshipped, present, acknowledged, or something. They were there. Many of the Corinthian Christians were overconfident of their own moral and spiritual strength, and they associated themselves with these idols. Um, and they allowed them to be around them and to influence them. Um, they became careless about participation in activities where false gods were uh, blatantly observed and worshipped. They believed they could be associated with pagan activities without being spiritually harmed by them. Some of the believers or professed believers in Corinth had slipped back into actual idol worship, which is talked about back in chapter 5, verses 11. They'd slipped back into idol worship. And Paul knew that others were in danger of doing the same thing because if you hang around sin long enough, it will get you. Because that's part of what Satan's plan is for sin, to be, it to be a snag to you. It to be a snare to you. 
Still using Israel as an example, Paul warned them, and he, and he quotes, he says in verse 7, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. Looking back at the Israelites, whenever they left Israel, uh, Egypt and were called out, the Israelites were hardly out of Egypt. This is one of the most profound stories. This is one of those stories that made me go, what were they thinking? They were barely out of Egypt. And Moses, it's, you can go back and read this account in Exodus 32, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's gone, the people became impatient in waiting for him to come back. They'd just gotten out of Egypt with little difficulty, which blows my mind too. They persuaded Aaron, who was the second in command to Moses, to make a golden calf. Hey, our parents hadn't been here for, they left for dinner like two hours ago. Let's start a rager. I mean, come on, let's just, let's just go crazy. What? What were you thinking? That's what they did. They persuaded Aaron to be involved in it. And they justified it in their minds because they thought we're doing something good. That's what blows my mind. For them, although the calf was a representation of a popular Egyptian god that they had been around, they had seen, they said, let's make a god similar to that, but the Israelites planned to use it to worship Jehovah. We're going to worship God, but we're going to do it in our way with the use of idols. They referred to the calf as the God who had brought them out of Egypt in chapter 32, verse 4. <coughs> and when Aaron built an altar to the idol, he declared a feast to the Lord. They were still worshiping God in their minds and in their hearts. They were still worshiping Jehovah, but they were doing it in their way with the focus on what they wanted to focus on. They were in blatant sin. It says that Aaron Ephod offered the same sacrifices, the burnt and peace offerings customarily made to God in front of this altar, this idol, this false idol. They thought they could use a pagan idol to worship the one true God. They had for so long been around idols that they thought this was a great idea. Quoting Exodus 32, 6, Paul says, The people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. That eating and drinking refers to excessive feasting, and then that play is a euphemism for sexual immorality. They decided they were going to worship God in their own way, and then they feasted, and then they were involved in immorality. It, about 3,000 of the Israelites who had participated in that idolatrous and immoral act of worship were put to death. God struck them down. Some of the believers in Corinth had also reverted to those old ways of worshiping idols, of using idols, of allowing it to, to seep in to their worship of God. And he was addressing that. We might think, well, okay, I don't, I don't have a problem worshiping idols. When Christians worship anyone 
or anything besides God, that is, an idol, that is idolatry. When you worship anyone or anything besides God, that is idolatry. Anything that takes our first loyalty and allegiance is an idol, if it takes it away from God. Even if it's something that you deem as good. So let me give you an example. I can make my wife an idol. Now, my wife is the most important person in the world. She's my wife. I have biblical, God-given responsibilities to her. God created this, uh, that marriage union, and we are together. We are one. But even that can become an idol if I elevate her above God. Or vice versa, her, if she, she can make me an idol. We have to be cautious about that. Anything that takes our first loyalty and allegiance is an idol. Number two is sexual immorality. In verse 8, it talks about the fact that the second major sin that was talked about in the previous verse play, but it's treated and addressed explicitly in this verse. It says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. And that incident that Paul's referring to is recorded in Numbers while they were in the wilderness, the people, it says in uh, Numbers 25, it says the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. It says 24,000 Israelites were slain because of their immorality. And the difference between those two numbers, um, because of the accounts that were given, the difference between the two numbers is probably best explained by taking the 23,000 to mean those that were killed during one day and an additional 24,000 uh, that died later due to the plague. God struck them down because of their immorality. Um, we're going to go a little quicker through this. So that was number two, was sexual immorality. Number three is trying God trying God. Verse 9, it says, uh, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And what's being talked about there in Numbers 21, uh, they gave the story that in Numbers 21.5, it says, and the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food which even that statement is a contradiction. They had food, and they, they said, we don't have food or water, and we loathe this miserable food. They had food. They were just not happy with what God had given to them. God had provided manna to eat and water to drink, but the people weren't satisfied. They wanted more variety. They wanted more spice. They wanted more things. They complained and complained, and they questioned God's goodness to them because they were not satisfied with what God had given and it was trying his patience. They had no concern. This is the big point. They had no concern for pleasing God. They were all about God pleasing them. That was their focus. They did not use this new freedom that God had given to them and provided to them to serve him better, but they wanted to know how can you serve us better. You've given us all these freedoms, and now I want you to serve me better, God. That was what they were doing. Christians sometimes do the same thing today. We try God because of 
a lack of contentment, trying to see how much we can get out of him and how much we can get by with before he stops us. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is the same thing. These are people that went and had a piece of property. They went and sold it, and they took the money, and they said they were giving all of the money to the church. They had the prerogative to only give part of it. They could have sold the property and given half or even given 10% or whatever they wanted to do. That was their prerogative. But they lied to God by saying they were giving everything and they didn't. They not only lied to God's people, but they lied to God himself. They were trying God. And it says uh, in Acts chapter 5, in rebuking them, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then to Sapphira, he says, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to test? They tried God. A lot of the Corinthians were pushing their limits of freedoms. Hey, we're Christians. We can't lose our salvation. God is forgiving. We can do whatever we want to do, and ah, we're going to be good. We can't lose our salvation, and God will forgive us. That's not the attitude to have. We cannot have that attitude. So, number three was trying God. Number four, and this is the last point, is complaining. Complaining. In verse 10, Paul warns about complaining. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So after in Numbers 16, what he's referring to, after Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their fellow rebels were destroyed by the Lord, he destroyed them. It says that all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. They accused Moses and Aaron of causing the death of the Lord's people, people that they deemed to be righteous, and God had struck them down. God was so incensed at their complaints at his divine justice, his justice that he had chosen, that he immediately sent a plague that killed 14,700 people. Boom, just like that. It says that destroyer is the same term and the same person that was the same angel that had slayed the firstborn of all the Egyptians in Egypt. That was the destroyer. Same one. God sent him to do that. Murmuring is dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others. Not just ours, but we look at other people and stuff that happens to them, and we're like, I can't believe that that happened to them. How could God allow that to happen? Be careful about the way you think about what God is doing and how God is doing it in his sovereign and providential control. When God's people question or complain, they are challenging his wisdom. His grace, His goodness, His love, His righteousness, His judgment. They're judging God. Our need and what we need to do is to be content. Not merely in our own well-being, but for being content 
with what God's honor and glory is, what he is desiring, what he is choosing to do. Complaining <clears throat> dishonors our Heavenly Father, and contentment, which Paul talks about in Philippians 4, glorifies God. So, <clears throat> two quick questions to close. <clears throat> Be thinking about these questions. Number one, what blessings has God and is God pouring out on you? What blessings has God and is God pouring out on you? How many times have you, in your mind, complained about your parents? Raise a hand. Here, I'll do two hands. I did. I complained about my parents. You know what? My parents were not perfect, but my parents loved me. I grew up in a Christian home. They allowed me to, they took me to church. That was God's blessing on me. I could have been born into any family, to any people on the face of this earth at any time in history. God chose to allow me to be born into a family with parents that were believers that blessed me with being able to be in church and hearing the truth of God's word. That's a blessing. They loved me. They still love me, I think. That's just one thing. You can sit and begin counting your blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. I could talk about the blessings of marriage and children and the ability to think and work and the skills that God has given to me. I mean, there's a lot of things. So count your blessings. Number two, are you running the race so as to not be disqualified. Every single one of us is in a race. Are you racing for imperishable goals, or are you racing for eternal, imperishable goals? And do you need to change your goals? So are you running the race so as to not be disqualified? Are you keeping your hearts and minds pure? Are you striving to be in a position so that you don't disqualify yourself as the Israelites did in the wilderness? That's the challenge that Paul has given starting back in chapter 9, the last few verses He's striving so that he is not disqualified. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the reminder uh, from the Old Testament of what the blessings that you poured out on the Israelites, the way that you worked in them to bring about your ultimate goals and purposes. And Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that it allows, us to, it allows it to be applied to us today. Father, I pray that you would give, a, give us a mindset of contentment, that you would give us a mindset of understanding and viewing what you do for us every day, that we would truly count our blessings and that we would strive to guard our hearts and our minds so that we are not disqualified from service to you. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.